You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. Welcome to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. Astronomy is a science that is so often in the news, but what is it about the study of the stars that captivates so many of us? Why do we look into space? And why do we send so much money into space? To answer our questions, we have here in the studio a Cambridge astronomer. He'll be telling us much about what goes on and what gets found out. And stay with us if you'd like to get to weekly local astronomy events where you can get a guided look at the stars and learn more. And if you have school-age kids with you, we've news of weekly activities for them too. Just after this bit of a tune. is the science show on cambridge 105 the community radio in your city we start with a hello from me roger frost this is the show with the science they never told us about in school and as we're in cambridge we've a special focus on the sciencey things happening here in town today's show is all about astronomy a subject not only in the news but also one from school for some of us, learning about the stars was life-changing. Well, it worked for me. At the age of 12, I'd read every book I could find on the subject, and when I'd exhausted everything in one library, I'd go look for more books in another. Most of those books were written by Sir Patrick Moore, who I'd never got to thank for firing me straight into science. Our guest today is Paul Fellows of the Cambridge Astronomical Association and a long-standing expert and stargazer, if he may call him that. His association, together with the University Institute of Astronomy, today feed the fascination for this subject, and he's here to answer my questions. And just so we get a sense of history, did you know that long before astronomy seemed to be about launching things into space, astronomy had a lot to do with navigating the oceans? So that's what I started asking Paul about. But first, let's hear what he says astronomy is about. Well, astronomy is the study of all the objects that there are in the sky, the stars, the planets, the distant galaxies. It covers a whole range of things from looking for life on other planets to looking at the origin of the universe and how come we're all here. Okay. So very much all-encompassing and brings in physics, chemistry, bits of biology, all sorts of different aspects of science. It touches everything. Okay. When astronomy was invented, that's completely the wrong expression, it was to do with navigation, wasn't it? It was to do with the Navy. I think so. I think when it when it really got serious and started to be industrialised, it was the formation of the Royal Greenwich Observatory in London, which was the centre for timekeeping, and timekeeping was vital for navigation at sea. Plus, you needed astronomical tables of the motion of the stars and the planets in order to work out where you were on Earth. You could look at the height above the horizon, particular stars, and work out your latitude, your distance from the equator. And then you need to know the time in order to work out the longitude, effectively what time zone you were in, very precisely. And that was a real problem before there were accurate clocks that could be taken to see. 
And obviously, if you go to the Royal Greenwich Observatory, you will see not only telescopes, but an awful lot of clocks, including Harrison's first chronometers, that won the prize for being able to calculate longitude at sea, as well as the latitude from using the motion of the stars. But before they had the clocks, there were such methods as studying the exact movement of the moon and even looking through a telescope, looking at the motion of the moons of Jupiter in order to be able to figure out the times. The moons of Jupiter are four big ones that can easily be seen and they would pass in front and behind the main planet and give you very accurate timings. And if you had an appropriate table in a book, you could therefore work out what the time at Greenwich was and therefore where you were. And this was going on how long ago? Uh, This was all in the uh, 1600s, 1680, the longitude was being worked out, and that's roughly when the Royal Greenwich Observatory was in its heyday, if you like. And literally, it was all about navigation. I mean, uh, on a, a different aspect of using astronomy, they were trying to find out how far it was from the Earth to the Sun to work out how big the Earth's orbit was. We knew that we were in orbit around the Sun, but it was quite difficult to to estimate that distance. And so various expeditions were sent to Jamaica and the South Sea Islands to observe very precisely the transit of the planet Venus. So sometimes Venus travels around the Sun and gets between the Earth and the Sun, and you see a small black dot moving across the face of the Sun. And if you measure that very precisely from different places on the Earth, with a bit of geometry and triangulation, you can work out how far it is from the Earth to the Sun and indeed from Venus to the Sun. Okay. And start to map the solar system and work out where we are. Okay. Now, astronomy goes on today. Of course we know this, but what is astronomy about today? I think fundamentally it's the quest for knowledge but it's the biggest laboratory in the world it's actually the whole of the universe is the laboratory it couldn't be bigger and we're using it to study how extreme physics works so looking right back to the beginning of time and the beginning of the big bang and so forth is a way of doing experiments and studying how the matter that we're made of came into existence without having to build an even bigger Large Hadron Collider because we're using physics from the Big Bang which is many orders of magnitude more energy rich than even the best machines that we can build on Earth. So that's helping to understand where all the hydrogen and the deuterium and the lithium and all the other elements came from and how we came to be. But it's also a very strong test of a lot of our physics theories. Einstein's theories have so far passed every test, but that doesn't mean that science stops. We're continuing to try to see if there are flaws or faults or improvements needed by checking out that all the models of the theories that are in existence today fit the facts. And this is the basis of science, really. You know, if I were a chemist, I'd do little experiments where I mix things. So what kinds of experiments do astronomers do? Professional astronomers would often divide into two camps, those who do the observations and those who do the computer simulations and modelling to check that the theory stacks up against the observations. So they'll run a model based on the physics that we know and see if that is consistent with the results that we observe. The difficulty with astronomy is you can't run a real-time experiment. You can only look at the results of the ones that nature has provided. There might be many billions of different snapshots out there but the experiments take millions of years to run and develop so you kind of have to just look at them and from a statistical 
pattern of observation, say, well, we piece it all together. This is the sequence of events. This is how stars evolve and live their lives and run out of fuel and die. That's because we see them at every possible stage of their life, mm -hmm. rather than that we watch one of them go through that. It would take millions of years. So it's a process of detective work and discovery, comparing it with the physics models that suggest what ought to happen. And then that's testing whether the theories are right, because if observations don't fit the theories, the theories have to change. Okay. So the experiment is seeing how good the model is, and the other side of that is obviously the measurements that you're making, or observations. That's right. And so, often we come up with things that don't fit, and those raise more questions than they give answers sometimes. So a recent case in point, if go on to talk about uh, some of the things that have been in the news recently, yeah. is... Um, the Rosetta mission to the comet, Comet 67P, who has that unpronounceable name, okay. Cherimyov Gerasimenko. There have been results coming back from that showing that the mixture of chemical composition of some of the water, there is some water there that's coming off the comet. Some of it contains ordinary hydrogen, some of it contains heavy hydrogen, deuterium. There's the, the double mass isotope of hydrogen. And what's interesting about that is it doesn't match the ratio of the water that we have on Earth. On Earth, we have 156 parts per million of heavy water. Okay. On the comet, we found three times that. Now, one of the theories that has been discussed is that when the Earth formed from lots of asteroids and protoplanets getting together, it would have probably been a molten ball of rock. So any water would have boiled away. Now, we clearly have lots of water. We're covered in oceans. Two-thirds of the world's surface is covered in oceans. So where did all the water come from? Well, one of the theories was it could have come here by being delivered by later comets coming in and hitting the Earth, comets being dirty snowballs made of a lot of water. But if the isotope ratios don't fit, then that doesn't make sense. So it suggests, perhaps, that that's not the right explanation and we need to go and look for another one. Of course, it could be that the comet that we've sampled is, is peculiar in some way, and some of the other results from earlier missions have shown isotope ratios that do match the Earth. So the jury is still out as to precisely where all our water came from. But given that we think that water is an absolute necessity for life, if we want to understand the, the origins of biology, I think we need to know where the water came from. Oh. Another piece of this is a story related to the analysis of a meteorite that was found in Antarctica. Antarctica is like a giant white bedsheet. It's a great place to collect meteorites because they okay. fall on the snow and okay. you can see them. Okay. As opposed to falling and getting lost. So collected quite a few of them. Now some of them are very special. They appear to have come from Mars bits of Mars that have been blasted off the surface of Mars by a heavy impact and have then drifted around the solar system and then fallen out of the sky on Earth. And the question is, how do we know that they've come from Mars? Yes. Well, we didn't know that until the 1977 era when the Viking probes went to Mars and they were able to analyse the isotope ratio of carbon and oxygen in the atmosphere of Mars. They were able to show that that is different there to what it is here on Earth. Now, these meteorites contain little tiny trapped bubbles of gas. 
And so the scientists have teased these little tiny crystals apart, got the gas out, which is only a minuscule amount, analysed it, and found that the trapped gas bubbles match the isotope ratio of Mars, not the Earth. So they're little trapped pockets of the Martian atmosphere that have been blasted into space, travelled around for a few million years and then landed here. So we know that that's where they've come from. And these particular most recent results were that the scientists were able to also discover organic residues, organic chemistry of life. How do we know it's of life? Well, we're not absolutely sure yet, but again, it all comes down to these isotope ratios. On Earth, we have the carbon dioxide in our air contains carbon. Most of it's carbon isotope 12. There's a little bit of 13 as well with an extra neutron. Mm -hmm. And life tends to prefer to build everything using carbon 12. So if you analyse the air and you analyse organic matter, you'll find there's a little bit more carbon 12 in the organic matter than there is in the air because the chemical reactions of life go slightly quicker with the lighter atoms. And this organic matter that was trapped in these Martian meteorites has that same signature. Now, of course, the next point would be somebody will say, OK, maybe it's contamination from the Earth. But again, the hydrogen that is trapped in those organic materials matches the hydrogen to deuterium ratio of Mars, not Earth. And so we know that those organics were not formed here. They must have been formed somewhere else. They must have been formed somewhere else. We know the meteorites come from Mars, and we know that it looks like it has the signature of life. And I think these are stunningly interesting new results that are all beginning to point one way, which is that there has been or was some form of organic biology-driven selective chemistry, if you like, life in other words, going on on Mars. And I think that's a fantastically interesting piece of news. Okay. I read about missions that are taking place. There's a mission coming up. There's a mission in progress. Yes. What's driving that yes. mission? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I, I think there's possibly two factors, really. I think the scientists want to answer the questions that the previous generations of scientists have posed, and that's why we're sending a probe to Pluto. The New Horizons probe gets there next year. It's the first one to visit Pluto. The Americans launched that some time ago and been travelling in cruise mode for a long time, but they've powered it up recently for the final flyby of Pluto. And I think we're exploring Pluto because it's there. For oh. the same reason that people climb mountains, because they're there. On the other hand, there's a, a probe that is going to one of the biggest asteroids series, in fact, the biggest asteroid. And again, that is all to do with chasing the origin of the water, origin of the planets, and the origin of life on Earth. So really, that's the big quest that I think the space programs are trying to answer. On the other hand, you've got NASA now launching manned space rockets in the form of their new Orion program, which is very much like a slightly enlarged Apollo rocket, and it'll go up to low Earth orbit, and its potential to go to the moon or even to carry passengers to Mars perhaps one day. But I think that's driven by a different motivation. I think that's the, just the human spirit wanting to explore, wanting to know what's over the next horizon. We don't really need to send men in order to do science experiments because the robots that we can send do very good measurements. The reason to send men into space must be something else, must be our, our quest to explore. Is this a huge budget that we spend on astronomy? I don't think it's uh, as large as many other sciences. I think it's a fairly modest 
okay. um, amount compared to physics or chemistry or biology. But I think it um, helps inform each of the other sciences. It helps to test the models and answer some of the basic questions. So I think it's worth the investment. We discover things that we're not looking for. And this is, of course, one of the, the beauties of science is that you, you might go looking for something and find something completely different. And many of the important discoveries have been made that way. The discovery of x-rays by somebody accidentally polluting their own film. These sorts of things do happen along the way. I think one of the big mysteries at the moment is the whole business of dark matter. Go on. So we know Newton's laws, we know Einstein's explanation for gravity. And if we apply those to the motion of stars in galaxies, when the stars are orbiting around the centre of the galaxy, the numbers don't work out. If you look at the amount of material in the form of stars and dust and you add it all up you get an estimate for the total mass of the galaxy and from that you should be able to predict the orbital speed at different distances and it works up to a point near the center it's fine but the further out you go the more the models don't agree with the observations so there's something wrong somewhere either this is that our theories of gravity are wrong or there is more material there than we can see Yet, we know that that material cannot be made of ordinary stuff, of ordinary matter. Can't be made of atoms or electrons or protons or any of the normal material. Because if it was, inevitably it would be warm, or warmer than empty space because of the shining of the light from all the stars and the galaxies. They would have warmed it up. And so it would glow in the infrared. And we don't see that. We see nothing. So we know that there's something there that appears to have mass but we know it isn't anything that interacts with light at all. This is why they call it dark matter. Transparent matter might have been a better name, but it's okay. quite so snappy. And yet we've never detected it, we don't know what it is, and it appears to account for 90% of the mass in some galaxies. Three quarters in our galaxy, I think the figure is. But oh. nevertheless, it's a huge percentage. And so for us to be saying, well, we understand all of what's going on, except for that three quarters of the universe over there that we can't see and doesn't seem to fit with anything that we know. Well, I think there's more to discover. And we've never seen any evidence of this on Earth. So there's something out there that astronomy is telling us that no other science can find. That's why I think it's important. Thank you very much, Paul. Every Wednesday in term time, there is an event at... Where is it? The Institute of Astronomy. So every Wednesday in university term time, there is an event at the Institute of Astronomy. It's quite popular. That's right. This is part of the university's outreach programme for astronomy to popularise it. But we of the, the local amateur association, the Cambridge Astronomical Association, work with the professional astronomers to put on a magnificent show. I, I would say that I'm generally part of it every Wednesday. But we have a talk from one of the professional astronomers. And okay. if it's clear, which is all too infrequent sometimes, but we will be outside with a whole selection of telescopes set up projecting live images of what we can find in the sky that night real, live, slightly wobbly images onto three huge projection screens. And there are a couple of the big historic telescopes that people can look through. And we get two, three hundred people turning up 
the great thing about the projection idea is everybody can see it once and myself and the vice chairman of the society brian will be there with a couple of very bright laser pointers picking out the objects in the sky so that people can see where they are and then we'll be talking about what they are and what we know about them and how we know it and then you can wander off in small groups and go and have a look through the telescopes and it's a brilliant evening out okay this starts at about 7 p.m yes the doors open at 7 and there's professional talk is at 7.15 for about 35-40 minutes while we're outside setting up and then have 8 till 9 we'll be outside doing the live floor show if you like Mm. and uh, if it's cloudy you get a cup of tea and a biscuit and a consolation prize which is a talk from myself and Brian on some topic for for that particular week. I'm sure it's good but it's not the same show every week so give us a for instance that you you did the other week. If it's clear the stars and the constellations move week on week as the earth orbits around the sun so we've constantly got a changing sky and we can see how things move and get new objects appearing over the trees at one side and we lose others into the sunset on the far side and the planets of course move around so there'll be different things to see each time and if you're unlucky and you come on a cloudy night then the talk that I gave for example was on the subject of the water and the comets and Mm. things we've been talking about and Brian talked about whether it was possible to build a space gun to fire yourself into orbit rather than needing a rocket and we we try to make these talks fun as well as educational so uh, we're not too serious about them and we have no equations and lots of lovely pictures just to reassure people is it just for the older generation no we had some youngsters there i think last night there was everyone from seven years old to about 90 in the audience wow some little kids there and they stayed right through to the end so uh, they had a great time we also run the cambridge young astronomers program on either a saturday morning for the seven to eleven year olds once a month or a monday evening for the older 11 plus group and for those we we do an hour from 10 in the morning for the youngsters where they have a series of eight minute long talks each with a different person they, they get eight minutes of me and then the whistle blows and they all get up and move to the next table it's rather like speed dating so they don't get bored with one person's voice and then they get a drink and a biscuit and then they get to make one of brian's magnificent uh, paper creations of uh, a rocket or a telescope or an astronomy related building Goodness and me. Cull them in and stick them together now where is this what's the logistics of getting there All our events are held at the Institute of Astronomy on Maddingley Road Road. in Cambridge. And we have a website, www.caa-cya.org. So you can see all our events listed on there. Or if you just Google for Cambridge Astronomical Association, you'll find us. If you're not a member, you can turn up. We charge you a pound. If you are a member, which only costs four pounds for a year, which makes us the cheapest in the galaxy, I claim. (laughs) Uh, then uh, it's absolute bargain and we can only put it on at those sorts of really affordable costs because of the help we get from the institute of astronomy they kindly bought us a brand new telescope this year in the summer which we're just in the process of commissioning parking there or oh, there's there's car parking and and uh, so forth in the institute car park it's fairly well signposted well you're you're only 200 yards from the park and ride anyway yeah yeah okay excellent thank you paul that's really good you're listening to the science show on cambridge 105 That was Paul Fellows of the Cambridge Astronomical Association talking to me, Roger Frost, on Cambridge 105's Science Show. So to recap on the details, 
of what we've just heard, there's a weekly astronomy event at the Institute of Astronomy of Maddingley Road at 7pm every Wednesday. It's on every week in university term time. You'll not be alone, you'll see loads of people walking up to the Hoyle building round about then, and there's free parking on site too. To see exactly what they've planned for the weeks ahead, look up the Cambridge Institute of Astronomy and click on Public Talks. The web address for that is www.ast.cam.ac.uk forward slash public. And if you've school-aged children, you can bring them along to that event, but you could also look up the weekly events and the weekly activities that are run especially for them. There are two each week. If you missed any detail here, see the Science Show podcast page on our website, which is www.cambridge105.fm. And that's pretty much all from the Science Show on Cambridge 105. You'll find podcast recordings of the show at our website, which is www.cambridge105.fm. You can pick up our podcasts on iTunes as well as at that website. Just search for 105 Science or Cambridge 105 and you'll find us. The show, by the way, is taking a bit of a holiday. But if you stay connected to the Twitter at 105 Science, we'll put any news we have there. And that leaves me to say many thanks to astronomer Paul Fellows and the dozens of guests who've informed us how science takes shape in Cambridge today. So it's bye from me, Roger Frost. <laughs>